Hello everyone, all hands on the time ring as we travel back to beat the Daleks at their very beginning. And you at home can play along with our interactive quiz. Today it's Genesis of the Daleks. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. So, hello everyone. Yes, today we're continuing with Season 12 of Doctor Who. Um, the fourth Doctor, Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan, have met some robots, re revived humanity, battled um, parasitic space bugs, and saved a galaxy from the Suntaran invasion. And they haven't even stopped for a breather. Uh, Liam, have they even slept yet? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, uh, Sarah did uh, when she managed to get you know a bit of a kip when uh, she got into the uh, cryogenic uh, chamber in yeah. the Ark in space. So she's the only one who's managed to get a decent amount of rest. Uh, other than that, no, they haven't. It's been non-stop. Poor things. I know. Um, yep. So don't go anywhere. Today we'll be discussing that story. We'll have an interactive quiz for you all to play along, play along with. Um, oh, we've got a brand new Dalek, um, Genesis of the Daleks expansion pack for our existing Fourth Doctor word search. And we'll find out some listeners' opinions. Uh, so, how are you doing, Liam? I'm very well, actually. Thank you very much. Um, can't complain. It's uh, the, the weather's uh, continuing its, its nice run of being absolutely glorious. It was meant to rain today, no? Yeah, so it was supposed yeah. to rain and have thunderstorms and, and all the rest of it. But uh, it's, it's like what I've said, uh, weather forecast is just a glorified form of fortune telling. It's a right load of crap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if you want the weather, just look out the window. It's fine. Um, yes, uh, they keep on. if you keep on looking at the weather forecast, they keep on pushing the... the it's you know it's 70% meant to be rainstorms and all the rest of it. And they keep on pushing it back every day. Um, no complaints, though. It's you know a, a wonderful contrast to May. As I said... Uh, in the last pod, uh, podcast, when uh, once again we were talking about the weather, um, it was uh, pretty much rained non-stop during May, so this is quite nice. Yeah. Maybe perhaps a little bit too warm, a little bit muggy on occasion. You mm -hmm. know, when you're at work and uh, in the office, and uh, you've got all the windows flung open, and the, and they've got the fans going, and still it's like oh, you're not getting any of the benefit. I think I'm it's increasing... been a bit cooler though today. It has a little bit. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, and, maybe, uh, maybe it should be a regular feature on the podcast. We'll do the weather forecast, then the news. Well, <laughs> well if it's good enough for David Lynch, uh, who does his weather forecasts, it's it, you know it's good enough for us. <laughs> and uh, and how about you? How are you doing? I'm good. Just uh, been watching some of the Genesis of the Daleks today. Been out and about in the sun, uh, and now I'm here doing this. <laughs> so great. not a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I think, I, I might be wrong, but uh, is it Jodie Whittaker's birthday today, the day of recording? Yes, it is, and, uh, oh, what's his name? He played Rory, uh, something Darville. Arthur. Arthur, that's it, yes, Arthur Darville. I'm sure it's his birthday as well. Oh, okay, cool, Send, sending them um, a big happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've no idea how old they are. But yes, I know it is their birthday. Oh, I've just recently watched episode two of Loki, Marvel's Loki. 
was pretty good. All right, good, good. Uh, so we've done some other great season 12 and fourth doctor podcasts. Uh, we did previously review the Suntoran experiment a while ago in podcast 32 mm-hmm. and podcast 58, City of Death, on podcast 59, The Seeds of Doom, and most recently we started season 12 properly. So from podcast 74, we have Robot, then The Ark in Space. Last week we had the Suntaran Experiment, which we revisited. Um, and you can check all those out on the website. A quick reminder, you can follow us on social media, facebook.com slash cloisterbell, on Twitter at podcastbell, Instagram cloister underscore bell. Uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and all the podcast outlets. Anything you want to talk about before we move on to Genesis? Uh, there was something I was supposed to do for the for the purposes of this podcast, but I have completely forgotten to do it. So apologies, everyone. Um, well, what it is is that um, when we first reviewed the Suntoran experiment and we were ranking it, that was back in the days when we were ranking stories out of 10. We've subsequently changed the ranking out of whether we think it's good, okay, or bad. And in the last podcast, we were curious, oh, I wonder what we scored it out of 10. And I was supposed to go back to the original podcast and find that information out. I haven't done that. <laughs> Maybe we'll yeah, do that so, next so, week. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that next week. So so, so if any listeners were very keen, <laughs> sorry, uh, uh, I shall try. Yes, I'll remember to do it uh, for, for the next podcast. Um, Great. So we I bet, I bet we'll both forget. <laughs> <laughs> no, well... I, I'm in sort of in charge of, of the next podcast, so hopefully when when I'm getting everything planned and doing all the notes and everything, it'll trigger something and I should be able to remember it. Um, and then just a quick thing, because you were saying you were watching Loki, I'm continuing my uh, rewatch of Twin Peaks. So I finished watching the first season, uh, which has the pilot and then seven episodes, and I've just started um, the second the second season. Um and this is back because everyone, people who are familiar with Twin Peaks will know that uh, the quality, because it's an absolutely amazing television series, but the quality of it does dip in the second season. Uh, but that's a little bit later on. I'm still watching it when you know when when the season's really good, when the program's uh, really. Um, so I watched the second episode, and I uh, I was watching it and enjoying it, and then. Um, the way that the episode ends, I'd com- I'd forgotten how how scary it uh, it ends. And ah, uh... oh, another thing that I have actually been doing is uh, I have watched some of the because the Euros are currently taking place. Uh, I have watched a couple of the matches. I watched the um, uh, the France versus Germany match. Uh, probably one of the only people within my social circle who was supporting Germany. Uh, Mike, I. Don't know what they would. I don't know what was going on. Germany were really not up to scratch. Um, all my all my other mates uh, who were watching at the time because we were texting each other, they were supporting France, and I said, "Well, great, you're supporting the uh, the winning team. I'm supporting the team that actually scored the goal because <laughs> Germany it was a it was a own goal. Um, yeah, it was France. The, the the correct team won. France were really really good. Um, so that was it was. Quite because I'm not massively into football, but now and again I sort of get the urge to maybe get into a, a match now and again, and it was it's just nice just to sit down and, and watch something for, for me, which is uh, relatively uh, novel. That's because cool. I want 
Yeah. At least, um, at least I knew it was happening this time. I remember once there was some World Cup, and you were, you said, "Have you watched the match?" And I was like, "What match?" <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, Rob. I remember uh, the, there was one World Cup where it, the, somehow it comp- it mostly passed me by. I think it was only the last two weeks of the World Cup or something like that, where I, I was out uh, with a group of mates and we were just standing out because we were waiting for someone to join us. And all all these cars were driving past, and I was just watching. And then it slowly dawned on me, like, oh, there's a, there's an awful lot of England flags. Yeah, there's an awful lot of England flags. <laughs> One, two, three. Oh, it's the World Cup, isn't it? <laughs> so it, it is completely, it is ext- it is it is possible to completely um, remove yourself from from popular culture. It's uh, it's staggering, really. Yeah. It's, uh, it's I mean, it was fun. hard to miss when I was a kid because. Mm. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't majorly interested, but you know, I, I'd always get like the league posters out the newspaper or whatever and mm. pin it up, and I'd get like the sticker albums and. Well, uh, I, yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember Euro '96. Uh, yeah, you know, I've I probably st- I've still got a Euro '96 Coca-Cola T-shirt. Somewhere. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Does it still fit? Um, no. Probably. Uh, well, that that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm sure Euro '96 was the first. It was the first time we had the first version of Three Lions come out, which is still an amazing pop song, of you know, and it really gets you sort of going and excited for the football. It's just, it's just absolutely brilliant. People still sing it to the, you know, I've got neighbours who've been uh, singing singing it pretty much every day uh, at, at the top of their lungs. It's still a great song and it gets you. And I remember uh, when we were at school, because uh, I think I'm sure it was France who were hosting it that year. Um, and they had this really peculiar mascot, and I'm sure when we were at school, we had the mascot come, and there was a whole thing about it. And we even um, the wonderful days of receiving an excellent education. Pretty much, there was one day where it was just we'll just watch the match um, in the in the sports hall. We know weeding the television out on that massive trolley. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. So I, I remember, remember that. Euro '96 very fondly because uh, of all that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We've got England and Scotland soon. In the yes. coming days. Yeah, like, that shouldn't even be allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's going to be interesting. I mean, I- I'm sorry for for anyone who uh, who is a, who's going to be supporting Scotland, but uh, you're not going to win. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so enjoy your defeat. Um, yeah, I-, I might actually watch that one. Although, well, to be perfectly honest, I know it's England versus... I'm not really that fussed about it. I think because we all know that the results are foregone conclusion. <laughs> but, uh, Unlike yeah. the weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, I think that's enough football talk. So I think it's time to play the Genesis of the Daleks quiz. Uh, we did one of these recently when we did the Victory of the Daleks podcast. Kind of tried mm-hmm. it out. Um, so that's making a return. I remember uh, on this occasion... Uh, you provide multiple answers, isn't that right? Rather than you ask the questions that are straight, straight in there, completely ruining it all. Um, so we'll try and stick with the format this time. What we'd like to do, we would like to encourage everyone at home to play along. Uh, the quiz is available on the website. If you go to cloisterbellpodcast.com, it should be, if you listen to the podcast at the time of broadcast, it should be fairly near the front page. Or you can go in extras and games and you'll find it there. Yep, so you'll all be playing against Liam, in fact. <laughs> so Liam, you're you're representing us. Right. 
So, question one. In this story, who first lays eyes on Davros? Is it the Doctor, Sarah, Harry, or all three of them? Oh, hang on. I'm trying to remember the, the order of the story. Um, I th- I know it's to I know it's the cliffhanger. I'm sure it's the cliffhanger to episode one, but I'm not. I'm gonna say Sarah. Gonna say sure. Okay, fair enough. No, I'm not. I've no, no, you said it now. It's fine. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Go okay. on. I'll say Sarah. What type of Daleks feature in this story? Is it the Mark One Dalek, the Ironsides, the Imperial, or the Mark Three? The Mark Three. The Mark Three. What does General Raven believe the Doctor and Harry to be? Mutos, Thal robots, Dals, or Norms? Uh, what was the first option, sorry? Mutos. Uh, Mutos. Who wrote Genesis of the Daleks? Robert Holmes, Terence Dix, Philip Hinchcliffe, or Terry Nation? Terry Nation. Who gave the Thals the formula to weaken the Coloured Dome? Davros, Nida, the Doctor, or the Mutos? Do you mean physically hands it to them? Because I've got okay. a, I've got a, I've got a who, who, here. Whose intention was it? Whose motive was it to hand it? Ah, uh, right, okay. Because physically think... it's, it's Nida, but it's Davros's intention. Okay, um, I should have made that more clear. I will amend the question on the website. <laughs> Come on, I'm a Doctor Who fan. Of course I've got to be bloody pedantic. <laughs> this story was broadcast in the UK between the 8th of March and the 12th of April. In what year? 
do you think? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of those great things where because the time war was only brought about in the in the new series of Doctor Who, and it's um, in fact, didn't Russell T. Davis said say that he saw Genesis of the Daleks as the first the first action of the Did time he? war? Uh, okay, uh, which you know, which makes sense. I mean, in the it's sort of um, in terms of classic Doctor Who, it's. You know, you've got uh, you've got this time lord given giving the uh, the doctor th- this task, um, which you know it, it makes sense. But in terms of the series, it's just sort of oh, th- uh, the time lords are re- suddenly bothered about the Daleks, and um, it's it's a nice little explanation, but you don't really sort of dwell on it particularly. Um, it's just a means of getting the story going, and then you just crack on with it. Um, so it's actually quite nice with this this idea of the time war um, in that aspect, making making it more relevant. Um, so on with some of the cast: the Doctor, of course, Tom Baker, uh, Sarah Jane Smith, Elizabeth Sladen, Harry Sullivan, Ian Mortar, Davros, Michael Wisher, Nida Peter Miles, Garmin, Dennis Chinnery, Raven, Guy Siner. Time Lord Messenger, John Franklin Robbins. We have the Khalid leader, Richard Reeves. And Ronson, James Garbett. Uh, this one, of course, was written by Terry Nation, directed by, by David Maloney, and producer for this season was Philip Hinchcliffe. Uh, I'm not sure about the production order. Did you say that the Santoran experiment was, in fact, his first? Yes, and so Philip Hinchcliffe is, is producing it. Yes, so I think the, the the order of production it was Robot, Sontaran Experiment, Ark in Space, Revenge of the Cybermen, Genesis of the Daleks. Also, oh, this was in fact the last produced. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I th- I'm yeah. sure that is the correct order. Yeah, that's cool. So let's break down these episodes. Um, the story is in fact six episodes. On balance, the Santoran experiment had two. How many is there in the final story? Is that a four-parter in Sabermen? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. So, in episode one, on the Scaro battlefield, the Thals are shot dead. Uh, it's quite a graphic scene. Was this a late addition in the story? Was this not Terry Nation that wrote this, from my recollection? Yes, so the, uh, Terry Nation's... Uh, uh, script originally had um the the story beginning in what was meant to be a very beautiful centered sort of chinese type garden um possibly on gallifrey but that was you know the uh, the doctor was trans- would have been transported there had the conversation with uh, with the time lord and then he would have been transported to uh, to Scarrow. Um, but everyone, particularly the director David Maloney, felt that that was wrong in terms of setting the tone and the feel of the story. It just felt it was a bit too soft and a bit too gentle. Mm-hmm. So what he wanted was to really, you know, uh, bring the tone and the feel of the story and bring it in with a real punch. And I think he was right to do so. I can't really imagine this story um, beginning in the way that Terry Nation had originally written it. Um, I think it would have been it. Yeah, yes, it would have set the, the wrong tone and feel for what the rest of the story would have been like. And it would have just been sort of a tonal whiplash. It would have been very peculiar. 
so David Maloney then thought, well, actually, what I'll do is, you know, and he brings in all this sort of like this World War One imagery, mm-hmm. um, and it you know, and it, it emphasizes the, you know, because uh, as we said during the, the questions, is that uh, the Carlids and the Thals have been at, at war for a thousand years, so this is this is a, a society which is pretty much dominated by nothing but war, um, and it sets that up uh, very very well. So yeah. Um, if it had had that initial scene on Gallifrey, um, that probably means the following scene with Tom Baker would have been radically different, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been a shame because that scene has such an impact when um, when it's this reveal, like, this is Gallifrey. Uh, sorry, this is Scarrow. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a brilliant scene. And, um, you know, obviously... If, well, obvious uh, in terms of those who may have either seen the movie or seen clips from it, because it is very iconic. But uh, Bergman's *The Seventh Seal*, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Time Lord. You know, it, it has that feel with the Time Lord looking like the figure of death from that. I'm sure. I think it. Came, I think that film came out in 1957, uh, uh, with Max von Sydow playing um, the Crusader in that. Who who he has a game of of uh, chess with death, and the whole thing was parodied in. Um, I think it's the second Bill and Ted movie, um, but here it's it's sort of purloined and uh, to, again to emphasise that the tone and the feel. You know, we've got war and you've got this mm-hmm. Time Lord as a sort of figure of death-like character, mm-hmm. um, clearly referencing that uh, Ingrid Bergman movie. Uh, so that's quite a nice uh, homage, if you like, or, or a rip-off, <laughs> depending <laughs> on your point of view. Um, and yes, it, it just that. As you said, the way that it's it's all written and, and revealed, and actually, because one thing I will say is that you know, classic Doctor Who is is ridiculed for trying of um, oh, here you are, you're setting uh, an alien landscape in another quarry, isn't that absolutely ridiculous? Um, and it's you know, it's, it's all what they they could have done at the time, and sometimes sometimes it really really works. And this is uh, this is one story where it does really work. It's this bleak landscape, and uh, there's an awful lot of dry ice, which which helps uh, establish a tone and a mood, uh, uh, as well as making everything visually interesting. Yeah, and that and that reveal of just going, um, uh, it's sort of it's interesting that you know you got that Time Lord figure who's who's toying with the Doctor and going, you know, we've got this this mission for you to do, and the Doctor just goes, oh whatever, and you, or what the Time Lord has to do, say is Daleks. Yeah. And then the doctors, in, uh, you know, the Daleks tell me more. Is just instantly interested, and then agrees to to do it. And then goes, "No, you're here. This is Scarrow." Uh, even though, obviously, for you and I, Rob, we're watching the story for, you know, the umpteenth time. Um, it's just really great writing with great performances and directed incredibly well. Whether it, it does, it, it it even knowing how the story unfolds and knowing exactly you know, where they are. Um, it still sort of gives it a little. It's still sort of like uh, interesting and it sort of gets you excited. It's uh, mm. it is very well done. Yeah, and this whole idea, even though we've left Unit behind, he's no longer in his exile. Yeah, um, it's still a new formula without the TARDIS, which is quite kind of interesting. The way all these stories intersect, um, and it's not just the transmat. This whole um, this whole idea that, that they've been taken out of time and they have the time ring to go back. It, it's a it's a really cool formula. Mm-hmm. Um, and it stands out. 
Um, so yes, we have the Time Lord Messenger. Um, his outfit, it, it's both like familiar because of the collar and also very different to anything we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a cool look. So the Doctor's uh, been asked to look for some kind of weakness or, or maybe destroy them or, or, or kind of slow down the development so he's got the he's got a few different options here mm-hmm. um he's soon uh, reunited with sarah and harry and they don't seem to ask many questions um about how they've got here um but there is a, a barrage of missiles um and you really you really do feel it because um, it's very noisy. It's not just uh, a bit of a dodgy effect. It's like it was like a practical thing. Um, mm-hmm. So it really ups the quality of that and uh, makes it believable. Um, it's a it's an interesting take going with the whole um, World War One, World War Two, Earth kind of aesthetic. Um, because when we look back at the Daleks from season one. Um, I think the whole idea that, that was it was meant to look and feel very alien because the Daleks looked so bizarre um, and it was something kind of unfamiliar mm-hmm. but with this, their origin it it's it's almost like a, a parallel evolution of Earth um, which works with the concept of the story mm-hmm. um, but does it, does that kind of defy your expectations of what Scarra should have been like? Should it have been more alien? Do you think? Um, I mean, possibly it uh, it would have been interesting, but then it could have diluted the themes and the direction of the story. I mean, yes, you're right because going down this way, going down this route, there's there's no subtlety at all. It's very obvious. I mean, it was. I remember when Peter Capaldi was on the Graham Norton Norton show once, and he was having this conversation about. Um, he was at a. Um, it was either at a convention or some sort of, or some sort of promotion for the series when he was in Germany, and uh, doing the whole thing of you know don't don't mention the Nazis, don't mention the, you know the war and all that, all the rest of it, and then he was saying, but the first question he was asked, which was. You know, this was in Germany, so it was a German interview, and mm. he was being asked, "Is it true that the Daleks were based on the Nazis?" And then, Gra- and then Graham Norton uh, said, "Were they?" And then Peter Capaldi looks at him. It was a stupid question. He goes, "Yes, of course they bloody were. It's clearly obvious." It has always, you know, it's you know, it's it's there in the very first story. You know, the, the Daleks are talking about the final solution. You know, uh, Ian described, you know. The, uh, that the Daleks have a dislike for the unlike. It's all about um, racism and keeping you know the race pure and all the rest of it. It's been there from the very beginning. It's there in the Dalek invasion of Earth. You know where you've got the Daleks going around London and monuments, their sucker arms raised up as if it's in a Nazi salute. So in that sense, it's always been very obvious what uh, inspired the Daleks and what they are about. Mm. Um, but they have been. Uh, used in stories which explore different aspects or are designed very differently or um i think one of the best dalek stories is the power of the daleks and actually how the daleks are used in that story is very interesting because they 
um, they are there to actually show that this newly regenerated Doctor is the Doctor. Um, but actually, there's this whole power dynamic going on with politics and all the rest of it. And the Daleks are actually used as a means of showing up our own foibles. And then you get stories like Day of the Daleks, which it's essentially they're just used as a means of telling an interesting story that plays around with time a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but here yeah, you get Genesis of the Daleks, and yeah, it's it's very on the nose. Uh, and there's no subtlety <laughs> whatsoever. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think it's... It's great, and because because actually you you're not given something which is so completely alien. We recognise this from our own history. I suppose that's a means of allowing you to really um, get into the story, and they can really play around with the the themes and the philosophy and the morals of everything in a much it's a, in a in a very clear cut way. When I said how um, maybe it's a bit of a parallel evolution of Earth. I mean, I, I can excuse it for in Doctor Who, but like, if you look at like classic Star Trek, and you've got all these alien worlds that are basically um, very similar to Earth in mm-hmm. the development ways, and in that little aspect where you have to su- suspend your disbelief somehow. Yeah. Um, but that that's the only point I was getting at. But I think had they went down another route, um, it wouldn't have um, kind of had the same effect with this story mm. you know if, yeah, it, yeah. if they went completely alien it would have just um, yeah it wouldn't have had the same message would it so there's a great scene where the gang find a dead Thal soldier and all his clothes and equipment uh, are kind of centuries apart because they've been fighting this this war for so long and um, technic- technologically they're going backwards they're just um short on supplies and using whatever they can mm-hmm. um, and you've got Sarah making a lot of these observations as well I mean I know she's not she's not new to the Doctor but she's she's new to this team uh, of um, Tom Baker and Harry so it's good to see that they're working like, together as a unit so shortly after this they walk on through the battlefield into a minefield and they've got a feeling they're being watched because uh, the so-called mutuals uh, are following them, and the Doctor stands on a landmine, and of course Harry's very brave and insists on helping him out and gets him off to safety. And then we see a first establishing a shot of a dome in the distance. So I'm guessing these domes are quite close to each other because later on we'd see the two domes on um, this tabletop map, and I was never quite sure. Are they literally just that far apart? Because like it's it's a big planet, surely, and you've got these two these two societies that are neighbours to one another. Yes, I think for many many years I actually thought this was one of the weaknesses of the story. Where this, I mean, you were just sort of well, it's it's not a big it's not a big deal. Don't focus on it. But you've got uh, the Khalid and the Thal dome. And I'm sure there's a line of dialogue which even says that they're only a few miles apart. And you're just going, that is just ridiculous. Um, you know, given the fact that they've been at war a thousand years and yet they're pretty much uh, they're pretty much living next door to one another. However, having said that, um, there are a couple of things. There are uh, instances in real life, uh, war situations, where you have had two opposing... I mean, uh, 
the war hasn't gone on for a thousand years, but you know it has gone on for a considerable amount of time, and they are pretty much neighbours. So it's it's not beyond the especially n- neighbouring countries that can have like disputes over territory and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so it's it's not beyond the the realm of possibility. So so you have that. Uh, but then the other thing is um, you the. And uh, it really hit me when I was watching the, the story that on this occasion. As to, so far, uh, because actually the idea is that th- these domes are massive um, because they're covering an entire city. There's that as well. So, And the, they're also meant to be a protective, uh, a protective dome. They're meant to be impenetrable um, to, to rockets and so on. So even though they are geographically very close to one another they are are they are still of immense size covering a huge city mm-hmm. and it is actually explained um they are impeg- impregnable to to rockets and so on so it's um what i once considered was a weakness of the story i, I don't anymore um, the way I like to see it is that on the tabletop you see these two domes that look pretty much identical and mm-hmm. it's something you don't see in 1963's The Daleks. Um, but in this instance, it's almost like the Khalids and the Thals are just like two sides of a coin. Um, because yes. um, neither one is necessarily good or bad. They both have the potential um, for either. In fact, um, we know the Khalids um, don't represent the views of Davros. Uh, and likewise, we know that the th- what the what the cells are capable of. So uh, yeah, it, I, I think it's a good analogy for like, two opposing sides that of the sa- it's the same people who've, who've kind of split apart. So the TARDIS team arrive at some trenches next to a bunker, and um, so conveniently they've arrived just where they need to be, and um, the bodies of the dead are kind of propped up to appear, um, like manned in this trench and then they're ambushed by some thals um it left me wondering where whereabouts is this bunker is it like, literally right next to the Khaled's dome or is it is it is it not quite because they, i guess they they did take an underground transport to mm-hmm. the um the bunkers underneath yeah I, I wasn't quite sure where this was in, in relation to the two domes um but obviously the the Khaled Sorry, the cells do attack them, and the Khalids come out um, and kind of drag the Doctor and Harry in, and they think they've left Sarah for dead. So this is where the team kind of splits up. One man does suspect. Is this um, oh, what's he called? Raven. Yes. Doesn't he suspect that uh, they are in fact a uh, robot created by the cells? Because it's rumoured that the Thals are creating robots. It's it's mentioned as a sort of one eye, uh, as a as a one line because they, they clearly don't know. Is that uh, they may be, are they, are they Thals? Are there rumours that they invented they've recently invented androids, or are they mutos which aren't that mutated? Yeah. So it's sort of a, it's sort of like a a line of of inquiry of a, of a possibility, but I think they. Um, kind of settle on. I think they must be mutos. Yeah. In fact, because Raven seems to um, kind of stick with that 
uh, later on during during their conversation. Because he even says even uh, even you mutos seem to know the difference between Thals and Khalids. One little thought I had, because of course the Khalids are developing the Daleks. What if the Thals are also developing some kind of war machine, mm-hmm. or oh, um, something like that? Um, so maybe it's like it's like a parallel thing. So they're taken on this transport cart uh, to the war room, and here, oh, this is where they meet um, General Raven. Sorry, he wasn't in the previous room um, for interrogation, and yeah, he does believe that they are mutos who are outcasts. Um, the impression I got later on is that other mutos just outcasts from the Khalid side or just general survivors on the outer on the on the outlands that's a good question actually uh, i mean the the way that they are explained because we get the explanation from oh um does nida explain nida it? that's it yes yeah, sorry uh nida is the one who actually expl- explains who and what they are and it seems to be from the Khalid's perspective that they are um you know, genetically wounded. I mean, it doesn't quite sit well with me because then wouldn't you have these mutos saying, "Well, they they're really Khalids, but they're outcasts." True, um, but then you know, with the type of world that they're in, maybe it's sort of um, they've um, they've accepted their own their own situation. You know, because the, the because this is a the the Doctor Harry and Sarah have arrived in a situation which is so utterly hopeless. You know, this is. This is a uh, an alien world, a culture which has known nothing but war for for thousand you know for a thousand yeah. years at least. That's a heck of a long time. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's the, the, it's it's a very bleak existence. There's no hope whatsoever. No. Um, so that I mean, that's actually a very good question, Rob. So um, if we if we were to go down that line of inquiry, you could I mean. You could actually go well. It's purely from a practical point of view in terms of the script. There's only so much time that you can you can delve into it and you know um, maybe if we were to do uh, a novelization I don't mean in terms of like a target novelization but like a, a full length novel of the story maybe you could go it go in and sort of like analyze it but at the yeah. same time you could actually go well maybe because this place is so so beyond hope that it's just entirely bleak. they've accepted their own lot they yeah. accept they've come to accept their own um appalling situation yeah and of course there could be um second generation third generation ones living out there that people mutos that were born in the outlands yes exactly yeah yeah there's that as well yeah um but i think uh so the way that nida seems to explain it is that because it's it again it's it's emphasizing exactly what you know the Khalids and the daleks are all about it's it's it, it you know this is nazism 101 it's uh, it's fascism it's you know he's talking about we we need to keep the Khalid race pure, is you know what he's you know what he what he's saying. Um, yeah, it's a, such such a radical change though. Like they've accepted that the natural form of evolution is just a weird green blob. <laughs> so um, General Raven, the young guy, shows the Doctor the map of the two domes, and he tells him that in a few weeks they'll change the face of Scarrow and wipe the Thals um, off the map. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, I've heard that before. So clearly the Doctor's arrived at the, at the right time. He needs to be there. Um, but yeah, Raven seems pretty confident that, that change is coming. Davros has proved himself to um, progress 
um, the coloured people quite a lot, not just um, with genetics, but um, technologically as well. So you must have a lot of faith in that. Um, but this is also where Raven says our battle cry will be the total extermination of the Thals. Um, and I think that's the first time we do hear the word in the story. Yes, it is. Um, and I think, it, you know, because obviously we associate that word with the Daleks themselves, but mm. um, from a philosophical perspective, it's interesting that it's written this very early on in the story. Um, you know, that thought, that thought process is, is already there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that you know, um, they're already talking about committing mass genocide. Um, so yes, it is the first time that is uh, that is said in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the doctor just say, "Oh, Khaled's K A L E D S." That's an anagram of, and he cuts off there. You know, it doesn't need to be spelled out to us because <laughs> no, um, everything else is. I think that would yes. be just like, "Yes, thank you, doctor. You don't have to be patronal." <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like the fact it's just like that's an anagram of. Oh, how very interesting. Um, yeah, again. It's uh, it's good. It's, uh, yeah, as you said, that's all that needs to be said about it. Totally. Yeah. So he does overpower Raven, um, kind of wax him, and then uh, gets him to take him back outside. So he was overpowered pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Sarah wakes up outside in the trenches and goes off for a wonder. So um, we'll see her later on. <laughs> uh, a new arrival comes. It's Nida. And I do love this scene where the Doctor and Harry have got Raven at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nida casually walks up with two guards. And um, Nida understands the situation. You're not sure about it at first. Because Raven's like, you need to go wait for me in my office. Um, they say, okay. So he walks away and then stops and turns and orders the two men to open fire. Um, so it's kind of cool that Nida was so perceptive there. Yeah. So the Doctor and Harry do manage to escape and flee to the surface. Um, and the sol- the soldiers fire upon them. Um, and then as they run, Harry sets off a landmine. They take a tripwire one, but thankfully he's not injured. So the Doctor and Harry do manage to escape and flee to the surface. And soldiers begin to fire upon them. And... Um, as they run, Harry sets off a landmine from a, a tripwire, uh, and then they're surrounded. So, Nida examines the Doctor's... Is it... Athenic beam locator? Um, yes. Uh-huh. And this was... Was this... Was this um, yes, this is back in the bunker now. And the Doctor reveals to him that um, they are, in fact, aliens. And Nida responds, saying that Davros says there's no intelligent life on other planets. It's quite a statement for... I mean, I guess we you don't know either way. But um, for Davros to be so intelligent, yet say there mustn't be any life. Um, well, it's, it's interesting, um, because as uh, Nida's character says, is that Davros says... Davros has said that there is no intelligent life on any other planets. Okay, I'll get onto that in a second. Whereas the other characters have seemed to have interpreted that as saying there are no other, there are no, there's no alien life at all. But those mm-hmm. two states, those two statements are completely different. It's completely different to say there's no alien life on other planets. Full stop. 
compared to there's no intelligent life on other planets. Maybe it could be because it's um, oh, I've forgotten the character's name now. It's the it's the scientist that they later talk to. Oh yes, um, uh, that name will come to be. <laughs> yeah, because um, he's the one who says uh, it's a well-established scientific fact that there is no life uh, in the seven galaxies or whatever it yeah. is. I mean, um, that's also a strange observation to say there's only seven galaxies because, um, well, I guess maybe techn- technologically they don't have, yeah, maybe they don't have the means or the time to look up to the sky and look at all these different um, colour spectrums and see um, all that's like visible because we, um, we can see a lot of the observable universe um, mm. and we know that there's a hell of a lot of galaxies out there so uh, i'm sure they've got the capability i mean this this observation could be could be a lot of bullshit coming from him well it's a couple of things i mean yes maybe it is a case that they uh, they no longer have the technological means to develop their their science in in that direction or maybe they do but because Everything is to do with the war and survival of their own races and so on. They've decided not to uh, research that area of science. Or or it could be because of the type of world that they're living in. Um, Visibility might be low. Maybe. I was going to say uh, censorship and propaganda. Okay. Uh, you know, th- blocking off uh, a particular line of inquiry uh, because it goes against um, accepted theory. And then, of course, again, and then going focusing on the the original words that that Nida says that had Davros says is that there's no intelligent life on other planets. Um, that idea that it's it's right across the board. The Collards think that they are, you know, the top guys genetically. That, that goes, you know, just in terms of uh, physicality, but it also goes in terms of, you know, they think they're the far more far more intelligent. So you may yeah. come across. Um, you know, other alien civilizations, but you know they're not but as intelligent. But they're far superior. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So shortly after this, Nida does go on to talk about the mutos. He does say that they are the scarred relics of ourselves. That they uh, they must keep the coloured race pure. So, um, that that could imply that they're not they're not just outcasts because of um, mutations, but it could be because of. Um, Genetics or um, physical at- uh, attributes or something I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So it it could be a bit of a bit of discrimination, not just that they've um, they've been part of field experiments and things like that. Because when you do see the mutos, they're kind of shrouded in cloth and stuff. But when when it's revealed, they're just a lot of unclean men. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, yeah, that's the thing as well. Some of them, obviously, um, with uh, Chevron, he has you know he has a limb. So there's a physical defect. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, but that that could be down to a, a simple disability. Yes, it could. Mm. So again, it's sort of like right. Okay, what do the mutos represent? Hmm. I think it's perfectly obvious. It's um, they are. You know, if the Carlids are Nazis, and I, but I say if if there's no if about it, that's exactly what they are. And they're talking about you know keeping mm-hmm. keeping their race pure, etc., uh, etc. Et it's clearly Nazism. It's clearly fascistic. Um, there's a there's an awful lot of you know Second World War symbolism. What are the mutos? They are 
the very people that the Nazis put in the concentration camp. So th in terms of this line of dialogue, that in terms of uh, what we've said is just, okay, uh, it was people who were disabled. Mm -hmm. uh, it was people that the Nazis weren't uh, particularly keen on. Um, and of course, Jewish people in particular. Mm -hmm. Um so and and I think you hit the nail on the head because actually when when we you know because the way that they describe the mutos um, is as if they're absolutely horrible and, and all the rest of it, and you come to see them, uh, and she's like, well, actually, they're, they're they're not that different. It's I mean, really, the only thing that marks the difference is the fact that they're wearing these shabby clothes, but the fact that they're that they've been social outcasts, just thrown to the wolves. Um, of course, that's all what they're going to wear. So. So, outside, um, Sarah continues to look for the Doctor and Harry, um, but she's being followed by some of the Mutos. And then she comes across, um, I don't know if it's like a destroyed building or something, but she comes across Garmin and Davros testing some Dalek weaponry. Yeah. And we have some typical kind of soldier targets for target practice. So this is the end of episode one and it's the first ever reveal of Davros and it's the first reveal of the Daleks in this whole story. So that's an interesting scene. I wonder what people's take on Davros was there and then. Yeah, it, um, because he's, a, he's become an iconic character in his own right, perhaps we, we take it uh, for granted. I think it would have been interesting to see what it would have been like to have watched the story originally in 1975 you know with no you know you're seeing davos there for the first time yeah. i mean it's an incredible design i wonder if it left people with more questions than than what we have because when we see davros we know him we're like yeah that's that's davros that's what he looks like mm. um but it's not clearly explained um why he looks this way it does say that all the work he's done over the past 50 years. So he's, he's clearly old and he's also clearly on life support. Yeah. Um, but there's not much um, of a backstory provided in this story, at least. No, because um, I, I know I, that I, big, uh, big finished. Uh, I haven't listened to them yet. I really, I've been wanting to listen to it for years, but they had a four part series called Davros. Yeah, I Davros. Um, yes, that's I it. Did, Sorry, I, I did listen to some of that at the time. Uh, check that out. And there's a... Uh, the Davros mission as well um, was kind of a success out of that. It was, the Davros mission was first released on... Do you remember the Davros Collection DVD set? Yes, I do, yeah. And yeah, that yeah. came with an exclusive Big Finish release. And since then, it's came out on a, on a downloaded release. I picked that up a few years ago. Uh, I can't remember what that one kind of covers. But uh, yeah, I, Davros, was definitely um, one to check out. If I remember correctly... It um, tells the story of a young Davros, older than he is when we see him with Capaldi. But also, he does have a sister called Yarvel. And there is a different origin for the Daleks in the comics with uh, Yarvelin and the dolls. Are you familiar with most of that? Uh, no, but... Uh, well, a little bit. Because it... Uh, it... I think it seems to really build off sort of what was hinted at in the very first Dalek story. But it, it, in that different kind of mythology, we had um, it was the Dals and the Thals. 
so the genesis of the Daleks does rewrite that backstory, but it wasn't part of the established TV continuity anyway. So um, in episode two, Davros, Garmin and the Daleks leave the site and instantly Sarah goes in and she's surrounded by the Mutos, so she's now with them. Uh, Nida escorts the Doctor and Harry to, uh, for processing and interrogation. And it's a nice little scene where they can ask for a cuppa. They want some tea, maybe coffee. No, we're not getting that tea. <laughs> um, so as they're scanned, Harry goes through the scanner, no issues. The Doctor goes through and it detects the time ring. So we have this crucial part of the story and um, that's kind of taken away from them. And uh, the Doctor really wants to kick up a fuss and get it, but it's nice that Harry's smart enough to say, um, don't make a fuss about it because they'll know how important it is. So the Mutos do consider Sarah a norm. She looks quite normal, apparently. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I've yeah. got to mention that that is one line that really cracks me up. I <laughs> Ever since I first watched the story back in 2000 and even watching it now, having, she's a gnome, <laughs> cracks me up. I can't help it. One, I think the line is... Uh, it, it, I, I, don't, I think the line's funny in itself, actually. But it's the delivery as well. She's a gnome. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I just think it's absolutely hysterical. Uh, it's the one minute. Uh, it's the one moment of the story where I'm, you know, you I'll be laughing my head off. <laughs> I can't. So, it's the one moment of the story where I cannot take it seriously because actually the, the story for the most part is, you know, is consistently very good. The quality is there. You know, and you're really in there, and you know you're getting into the, the you know, the sort of doom laden atmosphere, and then all of a sudden, she's a gnome. Um, it, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It just, it absolutely cracks me up. It's an unfortunate name, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's times actually, I, you probably think, oh, bloody nutter. But there's times where, you know, actually when I want, you know, when I finish watching that episode, I'm just going around the house crying, making myself laugh, just going, she's a gnome. <laughs> just, oh, I just find it funny. <laughs> so, um, the Thals are arguing over whether or not to kill her. Then some Thal soldiers arrive and take them. We would later find out that the 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 Mutos and Sarah and some Khaleds get put to work. But we'll get onto the specifics of that soon. The Doctor and Harry speak with the science division. So the guy there we were talking about earlier theorises that the gear was made on another planet, he says. Um, so he's got it he's got an open mind. But then he says that yet he believes only Skara can support life. So he's got his scientific views, which contradicts Khaled's uh, belief. Yeah, so, but, so he's been open-minded. But then the test results come back and it confirms that the Doctor and Harry are in fact not natives of Skara. So Davros summons the scientists um, and Davros comes in uh, this is the first scene of him coming face to face with the Doctor in the same room. And of course, it's not much of a face off because um, they don't really know each other. Uh, but he's come to demonstrate the Mark III travel machine. And he's, <laughs> I think it's quite funny where they say he's perfected voice control. <laughs> I mean, something we're all used to now. Um, but yeah, they seem pretty impressed by that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's funny because yeah, the, the, it when I was watching, I can't remember the last time I watched the story because it, it was a little while ago. But this is the first time that I've watched it where I was aware of that line, and uh, it's sort of the one occasion where I went, "Hmm, that line's dated now." Yeah. Plus, anyway, uh, it's not like the Daleks not a smart speaker; it's actually a life form. Mm-hmm. It's just listening and obeying. Yeah, but uh, but at that moment, it's uh, because up until that point. Uh, it's made clear that um, it hasn't been allowed to use its own free will. Yes. So this is a kind of a dangerous moment where he decides to connect the Dalek weapon and he says it's purely for self-defence. So the Dalek recognises the Doctor and Harry as aliens. Um, So it's obviously got um, the capability of doing that. Um, and it threatens to exterminate them, but we've got the scientist, what's it, we forgot his name, haven't we? Um, he kind of intervenes, and, yes. and of course Davros isn't happy, but you know he says, quite on we work, I'll deal with you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get to that moment where Sarah's locked up in the Thal Dome uh, with the Mutos and the Khaled, and they're going to be put to work on the rocket with this uh, with deadly exposure to this uh, this kind of stuff they're putting in the rocket's warhead, this, this radioactive stuff. This just shows the um, what the Thals are capable of. Putting them to work, it kind of, but with the radiation, it kind of reminded me of like Chernobyl, getting people to um, put the life on the line to um, to do something. But this was a uh, this was more like slave labor. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, well, you also had um, was it Siberia? Where you know you had forced labor and um, people f- mining uranium, um, but yes, uh, the Thals the, the, they don't really discriminate between Mutos or Khalids either. They just see maybe they must see any outsiders as uh, as different as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because I think you know usually you know you would expect um, you know the, the, the Khalids form into the Daleks. They're all evil. Aren't the Thals? Aren't the Thals really nice? Yeah. And you know, uh, and the way that we've seen them in before, you know, before in previous stories. Uh, the most recent being John Pertwee's Plant of the Daleks. You know, they, you know, even though they were a um, sort of a military group, they were very reluctant. Um, so usually in the you know past when we've seen the Thals, it's all been about you know their pacifism. Hmm. But not here. Not when they're in the middle of the war. Um, well, yeah, uh, or towards, you know, thousands of years of war. Um, they are as bad as as the Khalids. They're pretty much, uh, um, you know, the, the mirror image of one another. Um, yeah. And very, you know, and, and, and very sadistic as well. Um, and so that lends another uh, element of the people that our heroes, you know, the Doctor, Sarah and Harry befriend may not be in the, you know this occasion they may not be the nicest people they may not be the most pleasant people they may not be the people that you would know you know befriend in normal situations uh but this isn't normal and mm. it's all you know everyone everyone in the story is is really struggling to survive and um you do that by any means necessary yeah i always thought it would be a cool spin if this story had um went down the route of saying like 
Okay, the the Khaleds have been defeated. The Daleks won't develop, and then the Doctor nips into the future and finds out that the Thals ended up developing them instead. <laughs> I mean, the, the, despite that, I mean, there the, are the differences. Um, during the course of the story, you know, you don't hear um, the Thals talking about um, racial purity and so on. So they, they mirror each other in their actions, but the reasons behind them... Yeah, you know, it, it's different. The, then again, we don't we don't hear that much from the Khaleds either, from uh, even from the scientific military and uh, well, from these two elites, um, the science, the science and the military. They just um, kind of have their own views. They don't necessarily share the same views as Davros. Um, so well, it's I almost don't... like it's almost like Davros himself is this kind of negative attribute, not the people itself. Uh, you, well, yes and no. I mean, mm. the, the, there's there's nothing to suggest really that uh, the Khalids are against what we've established. You know, with, with you know how Nida is the one who talks about you know racial purity and so on. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that people seem to say that that contradicts that they that, that that they are against that. Um, yes, it is established that the scientific or have become um, ridiculously powerful. There's no democratic oversight whatsoever, so pretty much anything that you know. And, and Davros is the the chap in charge uh, in the scientific division, so anything he says goes. So there is that element of it, um, but when people go against um, Davros and the development of the Daleks, it's it is a bit of a double edged. Th- uh, you, well, not double edged. That's the wrong phrase. But uh, you do get the the sense of. Well, they're not against the development of the Dalek. It's just that they don't like the idea that they will be genetically engineered to remove basically what we would regard as morals. Mm-hmm. No, no, no empathy or pity, um, which plays a big part towards the end of the story. But um, so yeah, yeah I guess it's... they're not they're not even against removing the capacity for bad. It's it's just the aspect of. Um taken away the kind of humanity mm-hmm. they use the phrase <laughs> yes no <laughs> i know it's a bit sort of like paradoxical but uh yes it, it is that so you clearly get uh you you've really got the full the full gauntlet of everything you've got people who are clearly um who are clearly opposed to to all of this and then when the opportunity arises uh try and prevent um effectively Nazism. Then you got some people who sort of agree with it up to a certain point, but then you know but then everyone has their sort of the, the, their limit. Um so you do get the the sort of the full the you know the, the full spectrum of, of all this, which is interesting. And it, it it's presented in it, with the subtleties of the writing and also with the performances as well. So that scientist guy that we don't remember what he's called um, comes to see the Doctor and Harry in the cell and he's curious how the Doctor knew the name Dalek before Davros had even announced it. Um, so he, the Doctor kind of admits that they've come here because of future concerns. I'm not sure if he actually says he's from the future in this scene, actually. Um, I don't know. I think it's... Um... I think it's established that uh, by this time he's already been interrogated, so he's probably already informed them. Um, 
Oh, what's that question? <laughs> it's like, what's that question he asks Garmin? Do you do you have any thoughts of the correlation of relative time or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, huh, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> try. Oh, I'm tempted to try and fit that into uh, an everyday conversation just to see people's reaction. Yeah. Going, what the hell are you talking about? Um, fit norms into an, into an everyday conversation. Well, actually, that is sort of um, you know you got bunch that, of norms. <laughs> yeah, well, you've actually got the, the term normies going around, haven't you? You know, with the current situation uh, that you know that, that we're in, isn't right. isn't normies that uh, the, the phrase of people who are accepting all the lockdown bollocks? Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. So it's like you're a normie. Um, is is yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll try. <laughs> so, so even though I'm going around quoting uh, Genesis the Daleks, people might think I'm trying to say something else. But yeah, it is extremely tempting, and not only trying to 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 say um, she's a norm in everyday conversation, but trying to do it in the voice as well. <laughs> do you think that's possible? Yeah, well, of course it's possible. It's just like people, people might yeah. back away from you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's explained how Davros come to create the Dalek creatures, and um, this scientist who takes do- the Doctor and Harry out of the cell, he shows them the incubation room for the Daleks. Um, works really well uh, when you don't see them. There's this terrifying aspect of what they look like it's so horrific we don't see it mm-hmm. um, which is pretty good and then the Doctor and Harry are set free um, but face the the mutants in the tunnels mm-hmm. um, Sarah and the others return to their cell after a long day's work exhausted um, and she plans to find a way out and they're all saying how there's no way out Um it'll be hard to get out and then she says well let's just go straight up so they've got a plan to get out there so as Sarah acts ill the guards overpowered um, and then I mean the guard seemed pretty concerned he, what he should have done is just pushed her back out to the ground but he's like he does kind of help her <laughs> <laughs> foolish guy they, they break out and then they start heading up this um, this silo and the alarm is raised and they're fired upon so some of them are shot dead and fall to the ground. Um, and eventually, Sarah falls. And this is a cliffhanger. But it's kind of interesting because we've got this freeze frame of her falling and screaming. So it seems like she's fallen to our death. Yeah. But, you know, next episode, no. She fell straight onto a platform, <laughs> nice and safe. Yeah, but uh, with her neck hanging over the edge. Yeah, just that, that's life, I would have broken her neck. Yeah. Um, but uh, but visually it looks good. Yeah. Yeah, so fortunately she hadn't fell too far. Um, one of the mutos, her mate, what is the guy's name, helps her back up. Uh, Chev- is this Chevron? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they reach the top of the rocket and have to jump across. I mean, it's quite funny when he's like, I'll go first and then you jump, I'll catch you. And she literally, it's like half a step away. <laughs> I mean, I get they're so high up that it must be pretty scary, but... No, no, it's like... Because when I was watching... Because uh, I watched the uh, Behind the Sofa um, special feature on, on the Blu-ray. Uh, and uh, Janet... Is it Janet Fielding who played Tegan? That's right, isn't it? Janet Fielding? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
she says that whole thing about the way that um, you know Sarah hesitates stepping over the gap was a bit too girly and, and all the rest of it. I went, oh, have a word with yourself, man, Janet. It's bloody high. I mean, because I am absolutely, you know, I, I try and overcome it, but I am scared of heights. Yeah. And I'm, so, I'm sorry. No, it's not. Well, it might be girly. I don't know. But I'd be reacting in exactly the same way. Yes, it's um, the gap's small, but it's still a gap and you're incredibly high up. I, yeah. You know, <laughs> Like we can, I we can walk on solid ground with confidence because we might mm. fall, but we're just gonna hit the ground. But uh, yeah, if there's this possibility that you're gonna that you're gonna trip or stumble, you're dead. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So no, I'm totally with that. I'd be like, yeah, the way Sarah's behaved, just reacting, I'd, I'd probably, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd be shitting bricks. <laughs> if so, I um, like that. yeah. So they do almost make it out. Um, this guy climbs up the ladder and Sarah's going to follow, but by this point, the Khaleds have made it up the scaffold into the top and um, they're forced back down. And there's this really tough moment for Sarah where the guy takes her by the hand and kicks her off the side. Yeah, which in real life would have dislocated her arm, but we'll... Maybe, yeah, uh, she should have but snapped the... her neck earlier as well, yeah. <laughs> Oh god! <laughs> it's amazing that she can still stand up at this rate. Everything, her body's broken. But yes, again, because that's interesting. I think that's really the first moment where we're really seeing. Oh yeah, the Thals are really uh, a nasty piece of work as well. Mm-hmm. And this totally. is, you know, this is one of them really being sadistic. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason for it. Just the fact that he's relishing him, just being a complete dick. In fact, he, he can be forgiven for getting confused in this story and forgetting which is which. I think, <laughs> between the colours and the cells. So, in the tunnels, the Doctor and Harry reach the barred exit in the wastelands. Um, I mean, fortunately, the bars were pretty rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what was the plan when they got there? Just kind of figure something out. <laughs> Never mind. So they get through easily. But before this... Harry puts his foot in this giant um, seashell thing. <laughs> yes. And, and after unsuccessfully bashing it with the big rock, the doctor grabs a. Um, I forget the word. Is it stalactite or stalagmite? Which is which? One's, one drips from above and one drips. Uh, one. Uh, isn't stalactite the one coming Stal- down? Stalactite. Is... Yeah, stalactite's the one below. Yeah. Yeah. So he grabs the stalactite and wedge it to kind of wedge open the shell, um, and thankfully, uh, Harry's leg isn't broken. But that's um, that's an interesting scene because we have um, earlier on we saw some kind of reptile moving around. Like mm-hmm. a green, kind of scaly, giant crocodile kind of thing, didn't we? Yes, yeah. Uh, and and now we're seeing this because uh, supposedly um, Davros did experiment on animals. After Davros talks of making improvements to the Daleks, the scientists discuss um, the Doctor and Harry's escape. Uh, so... There's one guy tells that lead scientist that uh, they know they've escaped and uh, they've already reached. Um, oh, where do they go into my my brains? Lot do they go into the Caledome or the Thaldome after this? Caled. They go into the Caledome. Yes. 
So Nida tells Davros um, of the secret council meeting and um, he realises that Ronson, that's the name of the scientist now. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, he must have released them. So uh, he's going to be in even more trouble. <laughs> so the council only agrees um, to like this formal tribunal and investigation against Davros and his work. So so nothing um, nothing too immediate, um, which is unfortunate because Davros is a uh, kind of acting fast. Raven also tells the Doctor and Harry that he's heard Sarah has been working in the Thal Rockets, so they must have kind of insiders there, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. But then uh, he reveals that the Calid Dome is now more or less impenetrable because of some some kind of method they've used to, to reinforce it with some substance. Then Raven offers to send them into the service tunnels to enter the Thal Dome. So it's a bit weird, there's this convenient way in and out of the Thal Dome. And then later on, how exactly does Davros just go there? Well, I'm assuming he would have reached out through communication. And, I guess um, so, yeah. yeah. Diplomatic means. Yeah. Got in Fair contact enough. with the embassy or something. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so Davros, when he speaks to the council, he accepts to stop work. Um, he tries to push for 24 hours, but they give him 12 um, to shut down everything. And he tells Nida that um, the whole of the Khaled people have kind of signed their own death penalty. Uh, Nida's a little bit shocked here. He's a bit set back. He didn't really expect action on this scale, I don't think. But then again, uh, Nida's allegiance to Davros doesn't really change, though, does it? No, but I think this scene has um, plot significance because um, you can you can read the scene. You could read Nida's reactions one of two ways, but obviously we're supposed to initially think one more than one more than the other. So is Nida? You know, so are we to read that Nida is actually getting confirmation of what all this is about and knows that? actually Davros is more than willing to do this and he knew it all along and in fact Peter Miles plays the character uh, plays the scene towards the end where there's a slight smirk on his face so you you know um, clearly that's the intention but you're also supposed to read it going is he doubting does he feel like Davros has gone a bit too far so you get that little bit of a doubt so later on when he uh, tricks Garmin into giving the names of the traitors because he's he's made Garmin think that he's on his side. Um, we the audience are going well. This might actually be a possibility. Is has Nida been freaked out by uh, the extent that Davros is going to go? But obviously he's he isn't. He's perfectly forward. Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess that scene. Uh, that scene when Nida's response does um, does help those scenes later on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Doctor and Harry enter the Thal Dome. This is the scene where they kind of open the the hatch in the corridor and there's a guard standing there and thankfully he doesn't see them. So then they come across a room where with Davros and Nida meeting with the Thals and this is where Davros gives them the formula though as he pointed out Nida <laughs> it's probably hands them <laughs> yeah. uh, an oversight on my part so um, 
for the sake for the sake of the quiz, I'll I'm not. I'll not change the answers. I'll just make the question more specific. <laughs> so the Doctor and Harry rescue uh, Sarah and the Mutos in the silo because they've taken some of the uh, the guards' radiation suits, and Harry takes them back to the Thal Dome while the Doctor stays behind to kind of. What's he going to do? Was he, was he going to do something to the rocket itself? Um, stop it, or at least delay it, is is what he says. Right. Uh, but, but how he proposes to do that by the the rocket's massive, he yeah. seems to be trying to push it. <laughs> and strangely, doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. It's a bit, it is a bit odd. It is a bit odd. And then more bizarrely, Athal presses a button, which makes seems to make the Doctor drawn towards the fence and then he's electrified mm-hmm. it's almost like he was magnetised to <laughs> yeah so on to episode 4 the doctor awakens and the Thals watch the Caledon breaking up and the main rocket strike is imminent uh, so it's launched and the Caledon is destroyed so, so yeah the whole of the Caled people um, with the exception of the elite safe in bunkers is destroyed, so that's a major blow for the Khalids. Yeah. Um. So, Davros activates his Daleks to kind of retaliate, um. And he also orders, um, do we say it was, was Ron's? Yeah, the scientist's uh, immediate extermination. <laughs> so he's the first person ever to be killed by a Dalek. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting how that uh, that whole thing plays out because not only do we see him get killed, but we're also seeing the reaction of the people in the room, and they're completely blinded by the the, the Dalek the Dalek ray. It's that powerful, and we we don't really ever see that 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 sort of reaction later on. Uh, no, in every, any other Dalek story, so it's um, it, which I I mean I really like it here. It shows how. You know, how powerful and, and, and devastating it is. Yeah, it must be pretty blinding, yeah. Mm. So as the Khaled city's been destroyed, the Thals can celebrate and you can hear them cheering. And understandably, the Doctor's sad for Harry and Sarah because he sent them back there. Davros orders some new conditioning for the Daleks to remove their, their kind of feelings and consciousness and all these emotions. So I'm I'm guessing he's had this planned the whole time, but uh, he he must have just been doing it in uh, incrementally, rather than initially saying, "Okay, I want this cold-blooded killing machine. That's what we're going to become." Uh, so the Daleks enter and start to kill people in the Thal Dome. And there's obviously a lot of them out in the wastelands. Um, but the Doctor does return to the wastelands after he leaves the Thal Dome. Um, and after being attacked by Mutos, he's rescued by Harry and Sarah. And Harry knew the Doctor would come back this way uh, because he wanted he would have needed to retrieve the time ring. Um, but of course, the Doctor's happy that there. The two of them are still alive. So the scientists begin to scheme against Davros. 
So you've got uh, two of them talking in Nidus, kind of slightly looking from the other side of the room. Um, so he confides in um, one of them um, that he wants to stop Davros, that he's kind of gone too far. Um, and this is, oh, this is Garmin, isn't it? So he he does meet with Nida in secret, uh, wanting to undo the conditioning that Davros is imposing on the Dalek minds. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to give him an, an ultimatum, otherwise he'll destroy all the work he's done. Um, so this is where Nida persuades Garmin to give the names of some of the other scientists that uh, that he thinks are traitors. Yeah. Um, and when he, as soon as he does that, Nida reveals uh, his true intention, and then Davros comes out of the shadows. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that was a predictable move for Nida, for the audience? Y- yes. I mean, I, as people. I said before, I think um, there is that possibility that actually Nida could go down that route because th- th- there's been a seed of doubt, and I think actually it's been handled quite well. But um, but when Nida just goes, thank you. That's what I wanted to know. Um, <laughs> awful impression. But um, you go, yes, of, of course, yeah. It was always going to do that. But nonetheless, I do think it, I do think it was handled very well. Um, I do think it's a, I do think it is a very good scene. Yeah, it's definitely more interesting than just having him turn good. <laughs> yeah. So um, immediately after this, Davros can hear some moving in the vent. So when the Doctor, Sarah and Harry do emerge from the vent, Davros himself is sat waiting for them. So Davros is very interested in uh, the Daleks' future victories and also the weaknesses, the nature of the weaknesses. He'd like to fix that and... Mm get this foreknowledge um, so the Daleks will be victorious in the future so he begins to interrogate the Doctor and um, he can monitor when he's telling the truth or not so it's some kind of lie detector and he's persuaded him to do this by inflicting pain on Sarah and Harry so he'd like to know how the Daleks fail each time Uh, this is a tough thing because the Doctor's possibly came back here and done more damage than good. So in episode 5, the Doctor agrees to talk in details uh, the Daleks' failures. Then after this, Davros wants to talk to the Doctor. There's this really good conversation between the Doctor and Davros where the Doctor makes an an analogy of a virus that would kill other life forms. Would Davros allow its use? So he kind of ponders this. And he would. And it's a good scene because we kind of see this madness and passion um, in Davros. Because we know he's, he's obviously an intelligent person with a motive. But we this is where the madness lies in this scene. Where we would really know um, his true nature here, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you reckon so? Yes, I mean it's, it, it is certainly a, a level of mania. I mean it's a very good it's a very good scene, um, with an awful lot going on, with just some wonderfully written dialogue. Um, you know, we're really establishing what Davros is about, where he's coming from, and 
it's a good philosophical question in general but of course within the context of the story the doctor is liking you know the dogs to the virus and all the rest of it so there's a metaphor going on yeah. but then yeah just seeing uh, davros contemplating the idea and then getting really sort of excited yeah. and then realizing yeah this this man's a this this man's a complete raving maniac you cannot reason with him yeah at all he's intelligent um but you can't reason with him at all no um and it's kind of worked in the doctor's favor because davros is so preoccupied right now <laughs> in his mind the doctor manages to grab davros and um, by the hand and he turns off his life support and he wants to force him to destroy the daleks so davros is forced to make an announcement over the speaker and he's uh, about to give the order that um but yes Dest- uh, destroy the incubation unit and the, the order cannot be countermanded yes that's the word he uses yeah mm-hmm. so um unfortunately nida comes in and uh Davros doesn't get to say all this, so uh, yeah, it doesn't quite work out. No, he gets very, so yeah, the Doctor gets very close to um, to have you know getting the Daleks destroyed by by Davros's own order. But yeah, yeah. So things are starting to change because uh, Nida explains that the military is joining the scientists uh, to oppose Davros. So it's not made clear how many of the Khaled people did survive. Um, but it's a substantial amount, I'm guessing. So the Daleks are ordered to return to the bunker. So And uh, the Thals and the Mutos plan to break into the bunker as well. Um, and the Doctor plans to return to the lab to retrieve um, the time ring and the recording of the interrogation. Because unfortunately, that's looking locked away at the moment. Garmin and the scientists... They, they try this kind of power struggle to gain about um, don't they say they've got about 80% support of the Khaled people so they seem pretty confident that they're going to win this mm-hmm. and overthrow Davros um, and they're probably right uh, so Davros orders Nida to surrender the, the forces and kind of stand down and uh, yeah, kind of admit that. Uh, what, what was Davros's point here? That uh, yeah, they, they don't want any more bloodshed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting at this point because I think. Um, I mean, obviously, D- Davros is Davros is the villain, and he's being very manipulative. Um, but he's you kind of. I mean, one. I think it's it, it's written very well because you can see the the logic of his thought process. But again, it's sort of it's interesting because you you kind of go. He does make some good points. Well, I say some. He makes what I think it's more in terms of how it's written. What I mean by that is it, there's a line of dialogue where he's criticizing his opponents and go. You know, he's he's criticizing um, you know the democratic process. And he goes, they talk about democ- uh, democracy and fairness. You know, uh, that is the creeds of cowards. They. Um, they listen to a thousand viewpoints and try and satisfy them all. Um, and sort of as, as a criticism, well, you know, you, you can't, you can't please, you know, everybody. So just that, just that line of just going, you know, that uh, they, they try and um, satisfy the views of a thousand, you know, different opinions and all the rest of it. It can't work. I just, I really like, 
uh, I like that scene in terms of how it's written and again how Michael Wisher performs it. It's um, obviously don't agree with it, and he's clearly the villain, but um, from his it, perspective, but from um, you know you you can see where he you know where he's coming from. I just think it's uh, uh, it's just very good. It's just very good writing. <laughs> totally. So the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry get some new clothes finally out of a locker. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they've uh, have they slept in this story. No. No, apart from uh, Sarah had a bit of a nap last week. But, uh, well, earlier in the day, really. I mean, these... these la- How many days have passed, I wonder? <laughs> all these all these serials, it's not all the same day, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No. Um, but yes, they get some new clothes and um, they find some explosives too. That'll come in handy. Mm. So the doctor says that the Time Lords had given him three options and only one of them is still open, and that being genocide. And the, at this stage, the doctor doesn't seem to have too much conflict there in himself. He, he seems pretty resigned on uh, doing it. The Khaled kind of rebels meet with Davros and deliver their ultimatum. So he stalls them and takes time to consider. Uh, I mean, I'm surprised they don't know him well enough to think he's going to play us, let's just kill him. <laughs> but, um, he kind of accepts their ultimatum on one condition, that they round up all the important, important people into one room. <laughs> Doesn't sound suspicious at all. <laughs> um, yeah, so he wants all, all the scientific and military elite all there so they can vote. But they're like, well, it's, it's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. But uh, the Doctor and his friends arrive at the Dalek Creature incubation room. Uh, Sarah takes a peek in through the window for the first time. And the Doctor begins to set the explosives. So he begins to wire them up inside the room. And we get a few shots of Daleks in jars. Um, I mean, it doesn't kind of fit my imagination of what they were looking at when they looked in the room. It, it's almost like there was creatures in there walking around. No, but that's the thing. We um, we know that we're only seeing part of the room. So mm. yes, there are, there are these idea. There is the idea that this is just some of them. There are some of them moving around. But the doctor says, you know, I think they're pretty harmless at the moment. So this is just part of what's in there. I mean, because yeah. the first time that we we saw them look into the room, and in fact, I'm sure on this occasion when, uh, yes, the first time that they look in the room, um, you know, we see we 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 do see shadows playing across the door. So it is you know it's this idea that they are you know there are these creatures moving around. Yeah, probably at different stages of development and growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So meanwhile, outside, Harry and Sarah wonder if he's doing okay. And then he emerges with a Dalek wrapped around his neck, attacking him. So this is one instance where we get to see a, a Dalek that clearly isn't just inanimate and inside a jaw. And that's the cliffhanger to that. So in episode 6, they manage to get the Dalek off his neck. And then we have the whole, do I have the right scene with the two wires. It's a very memorable scene. He has this whole... Uh, moral dilemma does he have the right to commit genocide he, he brings up the whole an- analogy if uh, if you could kill a child that you know would grow up to be an evil dictator could you could you could you kill that child 
Um, and Sarah tries to rationalise. Well, yes, of course, it's the Daleks. You can do it, but uh, I don't think he can. And I, I guess we'll never know if he could in that frame of mind uh, before he was interrupted. Uh, well, um, it's it's interesting because I mean this is a great scene and it does provide that that moral dilemma and it does make you does make you think. Um, but for for all that philosophizing and then sort of going, I don't know whether I can do it, and then deciding not to do it. The Doctor then does actually decide to do it at the end of the story. He goes back to you know he rewires the cryogenic thing. He is about to to blow it up, um, but where the story fudges it is that uh, a Dalek arrives, uh, the Doctor has to quickly go and, you know, sort of like hide around a corner. And then when the Dalek is advancing, he then runs off. And then because he's dropped the wires, the Dalek goes over the wires, completes the circuit, and then blows and then blows it up. Yeah. So the Doctor does decide to go back and do that. Uh, it's just that the story fudges it a bit and makes the Doctor not do it himself physically. But actually, sort of. Oh, it's uh, it's ironic. We've actually got uh, the Dalek to destroy uh, the embryonic versions of themselves in the, in yeah, the and then he, he himself isn't accountable. Yeah. Um, there's no conviction there inside. Yeah. Um, but he did go back, and he he was alone. I wonder if some of the doubt, um, and uncertainty whether or not to do it was because he had people with him, possibly, before the Doctor can set off the explosives. Garmin arrives to bring the good news of Davros's surrender. Um, so the Doctor's very grateful that he's turned up and he yanks the wire out of the incubation room. So you came to think, oh, that's the end of that, at that stage. Um, so Davros presents his case to the Khaled elite. You just moments ago said... Uh, you kind of see where he's coming from, even though you don't agree with him. Um, do you think he puts forward a compelling argument? Uh, yes, because it's not it's not lazily written. Um, and again, it's you know th- we've we've seen these arguments, and we still continue to see these arguments in in, in real life. Uh, you know, th- in the present now, not just historical. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it's it's you know it's it's very well written and in terms of the, the you know the the explanation the, in terms of the actual story itself um he manages to convince not all uh but some people to you know to to join his side yeah, um but the vast majority you know are, are against him yeah uh but yeah it's quite it's a good achievement considering all he was doing was stolen for time mm-hmm. he still does manage to convince them so while they're chatting, Sarah grabs some of the Doctor's gear off the table. Um, it's worth considering that maybe there's two sonic screwdrivers in this scene. Is Do you think Capaldi's screwdriver is in Davros's base unit? The skirt? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, does Davros have Capaldi's screwdriver? <laughs> Why would he have Capaldi's screwdriver? Because he gave it to him as a child. Did he? Oh, I forgot about that. I know which story that you're talking about. The the witch's familiar, um, uh, whatever it's called, the magician's apprentice. That's the one. Um, I'd forgotten he did that. Uh, so he, uh, he has it. He has it as, as a child, and then he um, he still has it and gives it back to the doctor. 
All right. Uh, oh, for God's sake, Rob. Uh, you've uh, you've had to make me think about a story that I don't particularly like. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Maybe not. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> so Davros presents this total destruct button to the, to them, um, which is literally a big bit a big red button with the words "total destruct" on, and yes. it'll destroy. Um, I think it'll destroy the entire bunker except that room, which makes no sense. They'll be like, they'll be trapped in there like a tomb. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it's there. It would have been cool if the Doctor had had a big red button in the earlier scenes instead of just two wires. Oh, so yeah. he, he he got the low budget scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as Davros stalls them, the Daleks are on the way. And the Thals and the Mutos are close behind them, entering the bunker. Um, and the Thals began to plant explosives in the tunnel to the bunker. Um, this will be the only way in and out because there was another way into the bunker through the Khaled Dome. Um, but that's since been destroyed. So this is the only way in or out. Um, Sarah's Muto friend from the silo um, goes into the bunker to warn them because... Um, the Thals say that it could take about 30 minutes to to plant the explosives um, so he's got time to run in and get them as they vote um, like you said some do vote in favour of Davros and then uh, Nida sneaks away and the Doctor follows and they confront him um, in the corridor and they do make a good point with Nida because Nida says, "Oh, it was it was it was getting a bit out of hand, so I was going to do a runner." Um, but they make a good point of saying, "Well, why didn't he just just vote against him? <laughs> he would have been fine." So he hasn't. He doesn't have a response to that because it's crap. <laughs> yeah, he knows that they know. No, he knows that they know that <laughs> he's lying. <laughs> I knew we, yeah, I could yeah, and they, and and they know that he knows they know he's lying. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, there's a bit of a conflict in the hallway. He drops the time ring annoyingly and doesn't oh. notice. Um, and uh, he takes them to Davros's office. Uh, it's a bit of a unremarkable, boring office. There's a there's a nice desk with a chair that you probably used to sit at but can't anymore. Um, there's a table with a Dalek gun and then there's a there's a safe uh, above head height. <laughs> so maybe yeah, that's it's, the... it's it's all very minimal. Uh, yeah. I quite like it though. It does the job and it you know it's a uh, it's a new set. Yeah. Uh, which I quite like. So yeah. But yes, in terms of Davos, it's not very practical. No. Um, but it, it does serve the plot that the the safe is up a height because the doctor points out that uh, you you're always by his side and obviously he cannot reach up there so he gets you to do it. Mm. So uh, Nida does open the safe. Um, so they get this recording tape out of the safe and the doctor wants to destroy it, of course. So Sarah looks around and she finds a Dalek gun on the table. So. Uh, they shoot it, and in the blinding light, Nida flees and locks them in the locks them in the office. 
So the doctor realizes that they must have dropped the time ring in the struggle earlier. Um, Sarah's um, friend from earlier, he comes to rescue them. He's come to warn them that they have to leave. But he opens the door to the office and um, tells them about the explosives. So they decide to make their escape. Um, and there's also like Daleks roaming the corridors. So Davros lets the Daleks in and orders them to kill all the scientists in the military. So there's a big, uh, there's a big mass killing there. Mm-hmm. The Doctor retrieves the time ring and puts it on Sarah's wrist. Um, he then says he's going back to the incubation room while they go out because he will blow it up after all. Um, again, what what's happened between then and now? What's this definite change of heart? I think it's it's just sort of it's it's the last um, it's the only possible thing that the doctor yeah. can do at this point. He's out he's out of time. Really, yeah, I guess yeah, maybe that's it. So he kind of resets the detonator, um, but then he's ambushed by that Dalek that we mentioned, who kind of wheels over and conducts the wires. So the incubation room is destroyed, and. Then Davros notices something interesting, that the automated Dalek production line has been started without his uh, without his orders. Mm-hmm. So the Daleks then admit it was them. So Davros orders Nida to stop the process, but then he's killed. This is where um, the Daleks turn on Davros and this whole, this whole relationship begins. <laughs> But uh, the Daleks will have to destroy anything different. And Davros tries to point out that he he can help them grow, but uh, they have the capacity to make themselves stronger on their own. Um, mm-hmm. And Davros is seemingly killed before you can press the big red button. So that's the end of that. And of course, I'm guessing the, the intention was that uh, maybe there wouldn't have been any, any more Davros stories after this. Because he's clearly killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the doctor leaves the bunker just in time before they can detonate, um, which seals the bunker. So, yeah, in the bunker, the Daleks are still alive, but they've just kind of been set back. The doctor suggests that maybe they've been set back about a thousand years. Um, I'm guessing which is a different continuity from that of. The original Dalek story. Do you, is that the way we kind of interpret that? Like, um, the original Dalek story that we saw, um, those chain chain of events have been changed now. Uh, possibly. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've never really thought about it. I mean, it's it's likely. I know that a lot of people have said that Genesis of the Daleks actually. Rewrites the Genesis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it pretty much rewrites what's previously been established and probably does create a new timeline, uh, which it may do. I've never really thought too much about it, if I'm honest. We have that great scene with the Dalek talking to the camera, saying that that they will grow stronger. And uh, then we have the Doctor, when he says all hands on the time ring, and he makes a point that... Out of all the bad, something good might come out of all this. Yeah, I'm is... sorry, Doctor, but no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
you failed. You're trying to make yourself feel better, but but no, the Daleks have caused so much suffering. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's it, it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's it's a nice ending. It it does provide a little bit of an uplift for what has been a very bleak story. So I think it's needed. And um, uh, so th- the ending's quite nice, and all the rest of it. But uh, actually, you know, but in terms of actually thinking about what is said, because uh, even the doctor says that I know that they will call. You know, I can't remember the exact wording, but he basically says I know that they will do. They will commit untold suffering. Millions of people will millions of people will die. But maybe but alliances will have been formed and things like that. Yeah. So maybe out of their bad must come something good. Yeah. No, that doesn't make any sense. The Daleks are awful. For the yeah. love of God, get rid of them. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, unless it's something that is yet to be resolved. Mm. You never know. The new the new era could pick up on that. <laughs> <One>. <laughs> So that's Genesis of the Dogs all done. So uh, I don't think we had any listeners' responses this week. Um, I did say earlier this evening, um, what's your most memorable moment from this story? Um, on Twitter, Odd Man Out did reply, and he said easily and showed a screenshot of uh, the Doctor bashing in the, the shell creature, the big clam <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his legs stuff. That's pretty cool. Uh, Also, uh, in 1998, um, Doctor Who magazine did a poll. Mm -hmm. They asked readers um, of the magazine, over 2,500 voters, um, placed it at the top poll for the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. So I decided to do my own poll. <laughs> uh, so I did say, is Genesis of the Daleks truly the best classic Doctor Who story? 81% said no. Wow, okay. I mean, I know that since uh, since that initial poll, Doctor Who magazine, I think, have, have redone it a couple of times since. And The Caves of Androzani has come out at, at top. Um Genesis of the Daleks, I, th- uh, I can't remember now. But I think it stays within the top five. Um, so even though it's no longer regarded as a top spot from, from the polls that Doctor Who magazine have done, it's still ranked pretty highly. It's still certainly within the top ten, if not yeah. the top five. Um, but it's interesting that... What was that percentage? 85% have said, clearly said no, it's uh, not. Yeah, 81%. Yeah, that's still yeah. quite high. Right, okay. Yeah. Um John Lane replied to that uh, on Twitter. The best ever. I want to say yes. I mean, it is up there. Mm. But I can hear the invasion going, what about me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, It comes down to... There will be people who will say, yeah, it's totally my favourite story and I think it is the best of of classic Doctor Who, if not all of Doctor Who. And... Mm. uh, I can certainly see people, you know, where they would be coming from, but you know, um, I suspect um, there will be exceptions, of course. But I suspect that the vast majority of people who would say no, it's not the best Doctor Who story ever, but uh, and that but will be, um, it's you know, but it's still very good. It just so happens that my favorite or favorites happen to be these stories, but um, so I think. I still think people, the vast majority of people who say no, it's not the best, will will still say you know, but it is still pretty darn good. 
So this is the part of the podcast where we say, did we think it was good, average, or bad? Mm -hmm. Uh, We did do a poll, and we asked you, what did you think? Uh, 92.9% said it was good. 7.1% average, but no one said it was bad. Ah, right, okay. But yeah, a a small group of people thought it was pretty average. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's it's interesting that that uh, that that no one said it was bad, yeah. and um, I think I, I think it's perfectly clear how we how we're gonna rank it. Yeah, I think it just goes without saying. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, very much so. And I mean, obviously, we've been talking about the story as a whole and breaking it down into the individual scenes and moments. But even then, I mean, you know, we haven't talked about the set designs. The set designs are fantastic. The the lighting's really good. The costumes are really good. The, you know, the actors are absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, and there's this sense of, even though that you know th- the story itself is set within uh, in, th- uh, in quite a claustrophobic, uh, it, it, you know there's something quite claustrophobic about it because it's only taking place in certain rooms. But at the same time, there's a huge, there is a sense of scale about it that the cast is immense. I'm sure we have like 20 speaking parts in this story or something like that. Right. Okay. Uh, so it's got a huge cast. You know, we have quite a few Dalek props. I mean, towards the end of the scene, I think we have eight. Uh, in you know, in in one room, mm-hmm. um, a just... lot more, a lot more we could have spoke about. Maybe there's room to revisit season twelve again soon and talk about the sets. <laughs> Possibly, but I mean, but what I mean is, uh, you know, there's just there's so much good in this story that you know, even though that you know, because we've talked quite extensively and for quite a long time about it, and even then we haven't touched upon everything that I think is really good about the story and really sells it. You know, the music's really good. You know, you got you got David Maloney's direction, which is superb. Uh, just just everything. I think it is a, a. I think it's a very very good story. I've liked it from the very the very first moment that I watched it, and it sort of grows on me as as I get older. It's one of those stories which, oh, you know, it, it it just seems to uh, just shine and resonate, and it's just a really really it's just cracking good storytelling. Mm. Um, I think it's superb. Yeah. So I think that's it for this week. Um, please let us know what you thought. You can rate and review us. Um, we, you can review us on podchaser.com or on Apple Podcasts. Um, sim- simply take us out of five stars. And if you like, you can leave a few words there. Um, you can follow us on social, facebook.com slash cloisterbell on Twitter at Podcast Bell, on Instagram, Cloister underscore Bell, and you can subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. Um, you can support us um, if you'd like to help out the podcast, and because um, we are on Patreon, so you can get early access and more there, um, patreon.com slash cloisterbell. Uh, all that information is also on our website, cloisterbellpodcast.com, um, where you can find out other... You can find other Fourth Doctor podcasts and Season 12 content on there as well. Remember to check out our Fourth Doctor word search. Um, And like I said, Liam, I've added some extra Genesis of Daleks words to that this week. Of course, we have the Genesis of the Daleks quiz on there as well. Um, So I'll pass you over to Liam and you can talk about next week. Yes, so next week we will be wrapping up uh, Season 12 as we look at the, the final story of, of the season and also sees 
uh, the return of another classic monster. It's Revenge of the Cybermen. The TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster. The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh, no. 